Hi, this is Lily DeHoyas Anderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. Thanks for joining me today. We are talking about Jeremiah chapters 30 to 33. This is the second part of Jeremiah in our curriculum. Also, Jeremiah 36 and the first and third chapters of Lamentations. You know, these are hard chapters to read. Sometimes this is the sad end of the kingdom of Judah. You remember that after the reign of Solomon, the kingdom divided into two parts. The northern kingdom was taken captive by Assyria in about 722 BC. And that's where the 10 tribes become lost. And then about a hundred and not quite 40 years later, the southern kingdom, which took a little longer to ripen in iniquity, is taken captive by the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar, as prophesied again and again by the prophets. So Jeremiah sees the fall of the southern kingdom and lives through it. Lehi, a contemporary of Jeremiah, leaves with his family and the family of Ishmael to a new land under the guidance of God so that they can be a branch that is broken off that become a second witness to the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. Really a wonderful thing to make sure we're tying that in. Now, I'm going to pause for a second and start with a review of last week, if you'll forgive me, just of the message about being easy to be entreated. Because again, here we have prophet after prophet in the Old Testament that would offer forgiveness and salvation and restoration, regeneration. You know, the people could have become a delightsome people before the Lord, a Zion people, and they would not. You know, this is the sad story of Christ's summary where he says, how oft would I have gathered thee as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Ye would not. So, you know, my question is, can we make sure that we avoid this sad outcome of too many of the people on the planet, especially even amongst the chosen people who are entreated by the Lord and by his prophets, and yet we don't listen. So I hope that in this past week or so you have, and I hope you will continue to look at the areas where you are being entreated by the Lord or by those closest to you, and that you will be easy to be entreated. Again, this phrase comes from Alma chapter 7, verse 23. I'm going to read it again. And now I would that ye should be humble and be submissive and gentle, easy to be entreated, full of patience and long-suffering, being temperate in all things, being diligent in keeping the commandments of God at all times. All of those things are a part of the same idea. To be easy to be entreated means humility and being willing to be submissive to the will of God and to his commandments. Gentle, Are we gentle with those around us, full of patience and long-suffering, temperate in all things, not too extreme, not going off, you know, in total emotion. We've talked about this, staying reasonable, being diligent in keeping the commandments of God at all times. All of this becomes a package deal as we are then much more likely to be easy to be entreated. Now, of course, the opposite of, of being easy to be entreated is pride. At least that would be one way to frame the opposite, that we are too proud and stubborn to hear or to possibly apply what we're hearing to ourselves. And we think that we are sufficient the way we are, that we are are good enough, so to speak, not needing to continually change, grow, become, improve, progress, 
but that we're somehow finished, that we have arrived at some stature that is, you know, unnecessary to refine further. And that's never the case, right? All of us can improve. And if we are humble, we can go to the Lord and say, what lack I yet? And we can take the feedback of those around us and prayerfully take that to God. Again, we're not talking about people who are just critical or destructive in the way they talk to us. But even there, even when people are maybe inappropriate in the way they approach their feedback to us, the safest thing is not to be devastated by that, but to humbly take it to the Lord and say, is there a kernel of truth in this? Maybe the delivery was not kind or appropriate. But is there something here that I should be mindful of that the Spirit wants me to hear so that I can absorb it and be submissive to this process of continual improvement, becoming a better and better version of myself as I go through life's journey? So I'm going to quote from Ezra Taft Benson's landmark speech, of course, Beware of Pride. I've done that a few times before, but such an important message that is worth reviewing regularly. Pride is essentially competitive in nature. And that's certainly true. If we find ourselves to be really competitive people, we need to be a little cautious about that. I'm not suggesting that you can't be, you know, doing your best in the field of competition. (laughs) That's fine. But do we find that we become competitive in the arenas of life where we should not be pitting ourselves against somebody else, trying to be smarter or better or seeing ourselves as superior than other people and seeming to think that it's necessary to put others down in order to elevate ourselves. The proud, this is Benson continuing, cannot accept the authority of God giving direction to their lives. And that's the ultimate pride, right? That even God somehow must not know better than I do because I'm going to do it my way, not his. The proud wish God would agree with them. <laughs> that's that's true. They're not planning to change their opinions to match God's. They want God to agree with them. They aren't interested in changing their opinions to agree with God's. Just repeating this. Another major portion of this very prevalent sin of pride is enmity toward our fellow men. We are tempted daily to elevate ourselves above others and diminish them. The proud make every man their adversary by pitting their intellects, opinions, works, wealth, talents, or any other worldly measuring device against others. That is a really important idea and so much of a blessing for us if we can make sure that we review that and and eliminate those kinds of competitive attitudes. I'm going to read that last sentence again. The proud make every man their adversary. Now, the ones that I'm talking about a lot, of course, as a counselor are our spouses, our siblings, our children, our close neighbors or colleagues, those who have very close relationships with us. I mean, it could be anybody, of course. This could be, you know, just the neighbors or it could be people that we're not particularly close to as well. But I want to specifically warn against having these, this feeling of contention and adversarial attitudes towards those who are so close to us. I mean, aren't we on the same side? Aren't we trying to build Zion in our homes, in our lives, with or without the cooperation of the people who are closest to us? We still, we still have every possibility of living a Zion life if we eliminate pride and become teachable, easy to be entreated, oriented toward improvement refinement, change, 
chastisement as needed so that we can submit to the, the great superior intellect of God who loves us and wants us to have the advantage of progress, which means we have to be different at the end than we started out. So I'm going to finish this sentence that I started a minute ago. The proud make every man their adversary by pitting their intellects, opinions, works, wealth, talents, or any other worldly measuring device against others. In the church, I could add church callings. Why do we think that a church calling is somehow competitive with other people's church calling or makes us competitive? Why do we think that? I mean, how many times did Christ say that, you know, what, you want to be the greatest among them? No, it's the least among them that is blessed. You know, if if you really want to do it Christ's way, then you'll be the servant of all. I'm not suggesting that it's, it's not a, a wonderful opportunity to serve in the church in any calling, but I am saying that we have this unfortunate tendency because of our natural man that even with the gospel of Jesus Christ in such rich abundance in our lives, we think that a certain church calling that we might have makes us better than others. I hope that never happens, but it can. We see it sometimes. We might even hear people referring to it. I think I mentioned before a relief study president. I worked with a wonderful woman, by the way. I learned a lot from her, but sometimes she would lapse into this kind of thing where she'd say, well, I'm the relief study president because I'm the smartest, you know? And you're like, and we laughed. It was a little joke, but but how many times does that attitude creep in that somehow we know best because we have that calling rather than, you know, I might be the Relief Society president, but that means that it's God's Relief Society and that I am the steward who is under great responsibility to make sure that I'm functioning in a way that the Lord wants, not out of my my own strength. Going on with President Benson, this is a couple of paragraphs later, the antidote for pride is humility, meekness, submissiveness, easy to be entreated. God will have a humble people. Then President Benson suggests that we can yield to the enticing of the Holy Spirit, put off the natural man, and choose to be humble by doing the following, esteeming our brothers and sisters as ourselves and lifting them as high or higher than we are, receiving counsel and chastisement. Again, that really ties into this idea of being easy to be entreated, that we respect others fundamentally respect their worth as equal to ours. All of us being brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father, and that we are willing to receive counsel and chastisement, feedback, entreaty, and that we are open to listening to those things. That doesn't mean, again, that we have to agree with everything that is said, but we can take it to the Lord in humility and meekness, and say, is there something here that is for me? Whether it was well-delivered or poorly delivered, perhaps there is something in there that I can improve or, or repent of and become then more holy, more Zion-like, more fit for the kingdom, more like Christ eventually. I want to throw this into, I, I mention this occasionally, but I hope that you'll think about it again, that defensiveness is the opposite of empathy. If we're going to be easy to be entreated, there's an empathy that's implied there and defensiveness eliminates the chance to be empathetic. I'm too busy 
defending myself to listen to what you need from me or what you're hoping that I will be open to understanding so that perhaps I can make an adjustment that can make our relationship better or make our going forward more successful in the kingdom of God. So here's a random example, but I I found it as I was looking something up. It was a BYU-Idaho devotional back in September of 2012 by a sister, Sandra Rogers. I didn't know that name. Apparently, she was the international vice president at BYU at the time. And I I really like this example, so I'm just going to share it, and I hope we can make the tie-in. But either way, it's a cute little story. So I'm just going to read her words from her devotional address. She said, At one time in my life, I had the best calling in the church, that of primary pianist. I could play all the songs, sometimes with a little added flourish. I didn't need to practice, and the chorister didn't need to give me the songs early. Given how easy it was for me, I never, not even once, asked the Lord how he wanted me to fulfill my calling as primary pianist. I knew all I needed to know. Or so I thought. Now, think for a minute. Maybe we're not great pianists, but there are some areas in our lives where we may feel like this, where we feel really pretty competent. We've learned, we've practiced, we've had experiences again and again. And so we think, oh, I can do that. And we just do it. And maybe we do it well, but we're not really inquiring of the Lord as to what we can do more or how we can grow or become or continue to progress So anyway, she goes on. Sister Rogers goes on. Then one evening, I went to an in-service meeting. We were all challenged to sincerely pray about our callings. I thought to myself, what is there to pray about? I can already do this, and I do it pretty well. But after a little cultivation of the soil of my soul, nice phrasing there, I decided to be obedient. The message that came into my mind was, play the songs the children are working on for the program. The songs they know for prelude music. So there was a very specific thought that came to her mind when she prayed that she should, for prelude, play the songs that the children were learning for the primary program. She goes on, up until this time, I had just picked my way through the children's songbook playing anything that looked fun to me. When I began to follow the entreaty, there's that word again, entreaty, easy to be entreated, of the spirit, Something happened in primary. It took several weeks to notice it, but as the children hummed along to the tunes they knew, the reverence in our primary increased. None of us are ever so good, quote-unquote, at what we might be asked to do that we couldn't do it better if we were easily entreated. I think that's a sweet example of how Being easy to be entreated means that we continually ask. We continually seek God's way of doing these things. And we don't get caught in the pride even of our own accomplishment or capacity. But we recognize that we can constantly improve. There's always something more in the process of refinement. I mean, come on, still, there's a lot of space between us and Jesus Christ. Would you agree? So if there's all that space, how are we going to close that distance without being easy to be entreated so that we we follow the admonitions, the invitations that we get. We got so many invitations in conference just recently, and we do every six months in conference, but every Sunday in church, we probably have invitations extended in the sacrament meeting speeches or in our lessons that, that if we were easy to be entreated, we would take note of those and, and be prayerfully open to taking our stewardship's up a notch. And again, 
This is not about running faster than we have strength or thinking that we have to do every little thing that we are invited to do immediately and right now. Because there is a line upon line, precept upon precept, progression that is a a fundamental part of our journey. And God is not asking us to become a frenetic or frantic or anxious people. What he wants is a diligent people that are willing to be taught, that are easy to be entreated. So we prayerfully consider the many invitations that we have, and the Lord will guide us towards the ones that are right for us at the time. I think I've said this before, but sometimes some of us feel like you know it's harder rather than easier for us to get specific revelation. And, and I felt that way, um, especially early in my adult life. But I remember that if I ever really wanted to get quick answers, I could always pray that God would help me understand what I should change next in my personal life or what I should repent of or what I should grow in next. And it seemed that those prayers were always answered pretty quickly. So um, it was like every lesson was on a subject or every scripture I read was on that subject or whatever. And it was like, oh, okay, that's true. That's something I can work on. So so if we are open to that, the Lord will speak to us about how we can move forward, again, in wisdom and order, not faster than we have strength, line upon line, but always progressing. What a blessing that would be. And can you see the enrichment of Zion if we choose this path. Being easy to be entreated is essential if we want to choose a celestial glory. It's essential. We are not yet at a level where Christ can come, but we can be if we if we choose this path, which brings the powers of heaven into our lives to change us and develop our capacity to live celestial law, to choose that glory. Okay, let's kind of wrap up our discussion about Jeremiah today. And and some of the application here as well, I think, is important in our day. Well, certainly, these are parallels to our day as we see the world winding down. And I think many of us heard many messages in conference, particularly from the prophet, President Nelson, that did have that last day's feel, that things are in commotion and that it's exhausting to be in a world that is so wicked and so on. And yet there are answers in the gospel of Jesus Christ always. Well, Speaking of Jeremiah, I said some of this before, but I want to kind of review so that we get kind of an overview arc to his life. He was born, as I said, to a Levitical family or a priestly family in Anathoth and prophesied for a period of over 40 years. I don't know if I mentioned that last time. And that's ending with the fall of Jerusalem. So he actually lived past the Babylonian capture of, of Jerusalem, but his prophetic ministry, we considered kind of wound up there. So that was 40 years that he was a voice crying in the wilderness, as other prophets have been. After Josiah's death, the king of Judah, earlier on, he had tried to stem almost alone the tide of idolatry and immorality, of self-deception founded on superficial reforms, because occasionally somebody tried to do something that they said was, oh, now this is righteous, but they never really changed their hearts, and of, and this is interesting, fanatical confidence in the Lord's protection fanatical confidence in the Lord's protection. I want you to think about that because I think that we have a lot of that going on today. I think that we have people who just think, like we've said before, that everyone's going to heaven. No matter what happens, the Lord will bless us. The Lord loves and his love means that there will be no consequences, which we will talk about more today. He had to face continuous opposition and insults from the priests, the mob, his townsmen at Anathoth, the priests and Levites themselves that were in that area, 
the frivolous and cruel, the king, and the army. After the fall of Jerusalem, the Jews who escaped into Egypt took Jeremiah with them as a kind of fetish, and at last, according to tradition, stoned him to death. Now, we're not, again, that's kind of how the legend goes of history. We don't know if that's accurate, but he did die in Egypt. The circumstances under which his prophecies were written down are described, and that is in our curriculum this week. And we see that interesting description, which kind of parallels Joseph Smith's dictation of the Book of Mormon and the description of the scribes that were writing the Book of Mormon. So let's just take a minute. This is from Jeremiah 36. And I hope that you noticed it in the readings of the selected chapters that he dictated his prophecies, and they were written by his scribe on our scroll, and then taken to the king and to the princes and the other statesmen there. And they didn't like it because, of course, it condemned their idolatry and their wickedness, and they cut it apart and burned it. But nevertheless, the Lord's voice came to Jeremiah again and said, record those prophecies again. So with the same scribe, he dictated the same prophecies that were written and added even more. The Lord gave him even more, that second writing. Now, you remember that when Joseph Smith dictated the translation of the Book of Mormon, that the scribes recorded that, you know, the words fell from the prophet's mouth, you know, just perfectly, without hesitation, without correction, without change, and that after a period of a break time, you know, maybe from one day to the next or a period of hours or whatever, that he could pick up and begin exactly where he had left off without having any portion of the previous written record read back to him. So these, these things are received directly under the direction of the Holy Ghost. Prophecy comes that way. It comes whole. And I've had an interesting experience, and I hope you've had some of this as well. But one of the places that I get a lot of revelation is in client appointments with my clients. And I know that that is a testament to me of God's love for the people that I'm working with. And I, I feel so privileged to be a part of that because God loves his children. And I do pray about my practice. I pray about my clients and, and for them. And sometimes right in the middle of a session, I'll be saying a silent prayer for guidance as to where to, um, to start with you know, any interventions or psychodynamic education that can help people, you know, understand better their situations and move forward. Anyway, it's such a great experience. And I have had ideas come to me whole. Now, that's different. And I know revelation comes in different ways. Sometimes it's the whisperings of the Spirit, and we have good ideas. And all our good ideas come from Christ, of course, who is the fountain of all truth. So I hope we're not taking credit for our good ideas, because if they're really good ideas, they all come from Christ. And we can be grateful to be the vehicle or the messenger or the vessel that receives them. But at any rate, there are times when when I learn slowly like that, where one piece adds to another and then another, and over time I see a bigger picture or pattern. But there are other times where information comes into my head whole. And what is so interesting to me is that I never go back and change that information. It feels different for one thing. It's not like, hey, here's an idea that I'm going to work with. It's here is the complete idea. And I can write it down. I can chart it out or something on my whiteboard or on a piece of paper. I can say, here is the idea. Here's how it starts. Here's where it goes. And here's the meaning. And I can put it all together. 
And unlike the kinds of ideas that grow gradually and here a little, there a little, these, these kinds of revelations come complete and I never go back and change them. I don't ever go back and go like, oh, you know what, here's a better way to put it, or this is a more accurate depiction. No, when they come, they come whole, and they come complete, and they don't require alteration. So that's what I think of when I looked at this description of Jeremiah's revelations as given to his scribe, as written down and dictated, the same as Joseph Smith, is that there are ideas that we get whole. And I hope that you'll think about that, because if we are open, we receive some of those ideas and they are complete. They're just complete. Okay, let's finish up. And what I'm reading here, by the way, is from the Bible Dictionary. So all of you can go back and look at this if you're interested. It's fairly brief on Jeremiah, but it's a good thing to review. Okay, going on, an arrangement of the chapters in chronological order is indicated below. So they actually have here in the Bible Dictionary kind of a better organization of the chapters that indicate the chronology of what was happening there at the time of the fall or just prior to, and then including the fall of Jerusalem. The prophet dwells much on the inwardness of the Lord's relation to the mind of his servants. On the inwardness of the Lord's relation to the mind of his servants. External service is useless where there is no devotion of heart and life. Superficial reforms were of no avail. A complete regeneration in the national life was required. So where else do we see this? Very obviously in the New Testament, the Pharisees were very good about the outward observance. External service, they did their outward devotions, but their hearts were not engaged. We also see that this is how God described the religious leaders at the time of the first vision, is that, you know, with their lips they do honor me, but their hearts are far from me. So there was a lot of external observation of worship, but there was not the inward part. And that is always what God requires, the heart and the mind. A willing heart and a willing mind, where we give our will to him and we do it his way, not just do we have the image or the likeness of obedience, but we don't have true obedience. No, he wants true obedience, authenticity. He wants our real hearts engaged, not just we go through the motions or check off a certain list of do's and don'ts. He develops the idea of individual fellowship with the Lord. Though the Jewish state falls, the Lord remains, and religion remains in the life of the individual, because he did continue to comfort the people after the fall of Babylon. Also, of course, Jeremiah, and we haven't talked about this too much, but he does prophesy concerning the last days and the restoration of the house of Israel. And I hope you caught that both last week and this week in the selected readings. It talks about the calling of Ephraim, and the gathering of, of Israel and how God will fulfill his promises to the house of Israel, which were made back to Abraham, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob becoming Israel anyway. He, he has made these promises to his covenant people from the beginning that he will bring them back. And of course, it requires righteousness. It, it requires that we become easy to be entreated so that we can hear the Spirit. We can hear the voice of the Lord. We can hear the voice of his prophets. And we can, in our inward parts, honor him, worship him, change, become, repent, be refined, choose glory, become a Zion people. That's what the Lord is inviting us to do as he invited them. But we don't have to fall as they did. They didn't have to fall either, but that was their choice, and our choice is now. So I want to mention some of the interesting details about the later part of Jeremiah's ministry before the fall of Babylon, particularly as concerns some chapters, actually, that we did not read, 
in the selection this week, but I think are kind of fascinating to kind of wind up some of this Old Testament history that are in the book of Jeremiah. So, and particularly is concerned his relationship with King Zedekiah. Now, you may remember that King Zedekiah was the last king to reign over the kingdom of Judah, and he is the one who is at the helm when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians come in and destroy Jerusalem and take the Jews captive. Many of them are killed. Some of them go into Egypt to escape, but this is the fall of the southern kingdom. So a lot of this comes from Cleon Skousen's 4,000 years summary of, of Jeremiah, and I really appreciate Brother Skousen and all the work that he did. In the last desperate months of the siege, when the Babylonians had returned in full force, Zedekiah ordered the emaciated prophet prisoner, because he had been often imprisoned, maybe you remember that from what you read, secretly brought to one of the gates of the temple. Between these two men, there occurs one of the most amazing conversations found in the entire Bible. First, Zedekiah asked Jeremiah to tell him the absolute naked truth as to what was about to happen. And this is in the 38th chapter, which was, again, not one of our selected chapters, but it's in this last part of Jeremiah. Zedekiah took an oath in the name of the Lord that he would not kill Jeremiah no matter what Jeremiah told him, and also promised he wouldn't allow the princes to kill Jeremiah. But he didn't make any commitment concerning whether or not he would follow Jeremiah's counsel or advice or prophecy, which he did not do. But anyway, Jeremiah, even at this 11th hour, and maybe you remember, he's thrown into this pit that has mud at the bottom. They call it mire, M-I-R-E, or miry pit, you know, where so another, I mean, can you imagine how awful? And it was so deep, they have to lower him in with ropes and then leave him there in this pit where he's in the mud and the mire and with no food. And it's an Ethiopian who comes and petitions the king and says, let me take him out because he'll die. There's no bread left in the city that we, we can't even put bread and cast it down in the pit for him. And he'll just starve. And, you know, it's interesting because although nobody listens to him, they all knew he was a prophet. And that's why Zedekiah comes secretly and says, well, what's really going on? Can you tell me? I mean, isn't that a weird dual relationship that he has here with Jeremiah? I mean, in one place, he's too scared to stand up to him against his princes and, and all those other statesmen, but but he really does know that Jeremiah speaks for the Lord. So he's willfully ignorant. And I think that this is something to look in the mirror at ourselves about and say, are there things of which I am willfully ignorant? Do I ignore things that I know I should change? Again, this kind of ties into the easy to be entreated part, but are there things where I'm choosing to be ignorant or choosing to pretend that I don't really know? Remember the words of Amulek, the, the missionary companion of Alma, who houses Alma and then goes with him as companion on his mission. And he says about himself, I knew, but I would not know. In other words, I knew better, but I didn't want to know. I was willfully ignorant. I willfully ignored it. We could, we, sometimes we call that denial, where it's like I, I just pretended like I didn't know something, but I actually did. Very dangerous, very dangerous, because this is kind of covering the light. You know, we're, we're kind of hiding from the light and the truth. And there's no positive outcome of turning from light in that way. So willful ignorance, same thing with Zedekiah here. He, he knows Jeremiah is a prophet. He comes to him secretly, but he won't listen to him. 
And then Jeremiah, even at this 11th hour, the Babylonians are literally at the gate. If thou wilt assuredly go forth and surrender, meaning surrender unto the king of Babylon's princes, this is also in chapter 38, then thy soul shall live and this city shall not be burned with fire and thou shalt live and thine house, his children too would be saved. But if thou wilt not go forth to the king of Babylon's princes, then this city be given into the hand of the Chaldeans, who were with the Babylonians, of course, and they shall burn it with fire, and thou shalt not escape out of their hand. But Zedekiah is afraid to surrender to Babylon. And, and basically, he says that he's afraid that Nebuchadnezzar will ship him back to Babylon and turn him loose amongst the Jewish captives who've been taken into Babylon, and then say that they would mock or abuse him for being an incompetent king. So he's so afraid of, of how he'll have to deal with the consequences of his bad decisions that he's like, no, I can't even surrender. So it's kind of a fearful cowardice that happens, and he... And he won't do it. He won't repent even though he won't follow the counsel. Well, it's not even about repentance at this point, but it's about just surrender the king of Babylon and it will save your life and the life of your, of your family. But he won't do it. So 587 BC, Jerusalem is finally starved into a state of total collapse and they are under siege. So it is one of those horrible situations as prophesied by ancient prophets prior to this time, as well as Jeremiah himself, saying that that they would starve. And Ezekiel is going to talk about that, too. We're going to save some of that for next week. And then, of course, Babylon breaks through the outer walls, and Zedekiah flees the city. When this is all coming down to the last wire, he and his officers and his army flee the city, and they leave women, children, and other civilians to the ravages of the conquering army. I mean, really wicked here to bug out like that. And then, of course, he's captured, and they bring them back. The Babylonians bring back Zedekiah, and they find his statesmen, many of the princes and so on, and they execute those, and then they have Zedekiah and his sons, and they bring the sons before Zedekiah and kill them in front of their father. I mean, it's terrible, these, these horrible prophecies of the consequences of repetitive sin and of pride and arrogance against the Lord and the insistence on worshiping stone and wood and, you know, all these idols made by man instead of turning to the Lord God for deliverance. They're all finally fulfilled. All the warnings are fulfilled. So then this is tragic. Maybe you remember this, but Zedekiah's sons are killed before him, and then his eyes are put out so that he is blind. So the last thing that he sees with his own eyes on this planet are the executions of his sons. Except while this is not recorded in the Old Testament, the Book of Mormon tells us that one of Zedekiah's sons escaped. You remember who that was? That was Mulek, M-U-L-E-K. Mulek is one of the sons of Zedekiah. Now, you remember Zedekiah because all the kings of the southern kingdom were direct descendants of King David. They're all of the house of Judah. Those were the ones who reigned. And Mulek is of the house of Judah. And he, with a small group of people, managed to escape and, inspired by the Lord, build ships of some kind and escape to North America. Well, we don't know North or South, but anyway, to the Americas. And they land there and eventually build a big city called Zarahemla. 
Zarahemla in the Book of Mormon is built by Mulekites, who were direct descendants of King Zedekiah, King David, of the line of Judah. So that's why in the New World, in the Book of Mormon peoples, we have basically three tribes represented. Lehi is from Manasseh. Ishmael, who had the daughters that married the sons of Lehi, is from Ephraim. So those two houses mixed together, Ephraim and Manasseh. And then when the Nephites are fleeing the Lamanites and they keep moving north so that they can escape the wars, they run into Zarahemla. Now the Nephites end up taking over because, remember, the people of Zarahemla don't have records. They didn't have the brass plates. They don't know who they are, really. They've lost the gospel. They've lost their language. The language has changed over the years so that they don't speak the language that their fathers brought with them to that land. So they have to be taught of the Nephites, of their own heritage, and their own language, and of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, now back to the book of Jeremiah. So Jeremiah was taken, as we mentioned, by some of the survivors there that escaped into Egypt. The Babylonians actually know Jeremiah. They know of him because it does mention in the record, some of the later chapters of Jeremiah, that the captain of the guard of the Babylonians knows that Jeremiah predicted, about, or prophesied, better put, a Babylonian victory over Jerusalem as a punishment from Israel's God for their idolatry and wickedness. So Nebuchadnezzar had told his commanding general to take Jeremiah and look well to him and do him no harm. So the Babylonian leaders get him out of prison and make sure that no harm befalls him. And they also kind of look after some of the friends of Jeremiah who had helped him or even saved him sometimes from starvation. So then they release him eventually, and he does seem to, again, we don't have all the details, but that he, he may have gone into Egypt and that he dies then, whether stoned to death or a natural death, we don't really know. Now, for Lamentations, I just want to read a little quick summary that Cleon Skousen gives in his book, The 4,000 Years. Jeremiah acknowledged, this is in the book of Lamentations, right, which obviously are the grief and the, the mourning for Israel, that everything which had happened to Judah was the direct result of her own culpable and vicious rebellion against truth, righteousness, and human decency. The people and their leaders had insulted God, sacrificed their children, listened to false prophets, and degraded themselves with every type of immorality and crime. No amount of warning could turn them from their course. Therefore, they had reaped the whirlwind. Now, you see parallels to our day? <laughs> you see parallels? I do. I think you do, too. Insulting God? Well, you see it everywhere. That the blasphemy, the sacrilege, the, the out-and-out mockery of sacred things, the, the hard push against religion, sacrifice their children. We talked about abortion last time. This terrible sin, this terrible, terrible offense against life itself. Listen to false prophets degrading themselves with every type of immorality and crime. Again, are, are we not seeing this all over the place? And no amount of warning seems to turn people from their course when they're into that path because they won't listen. They are not easy to be entreated. They are hard-hearted and stiff-necked, and therefore the whirlwind is coming. 
So what is one of the big messages of Jeremiah? There are consequences to our choices. I mentioned this before, but I remember when I was a kid, sometimes hearing people say things like, well, I have my free agency. And they would use the term free agency, which I hope you remember that in a speech called Our Moral Environment, Boyd K. Packer corrected that and said there is no term free agency in scripture. It's moral agency. It's not free. And I think he was just trying to pull back from the idea that it was free of consequences because, you know, I mean, you can call it what you want as long as you define it correctly, I suppose. But the point is that agency, yes, gives us the right to choose, but it does not give us the right to then, having chosen, avoid the consequences of our choice. And in that way, it is not the same as being free. I mean, every choice has consequences. We pick the beginning of the road, we pick the end of the road too. And it's not okay to then say, well, I can do whatever I want and get away with it, which seems to be implied when people say things like, well, I have my agency or I have my free agency. They're seeming to imply that I can do what I want and avoid all the consequences thereof. And that is a lie. That is a lie of Satan's that, you know, that you do whatever you want and then be beaten with a few stripes, maybe, and at last be saved in the kingdom of God and maybe not even be beaten by a few stripes when it comes to some people's philosophies, which seem to diminish any requirement in order to be saved or to go to heaven. So I mentioned this a long time ago, but I'm going to mention it again. I think the first time that I really saw this vividly was, I don't know if it was the first time, but anyway, we were in Chicago, young young family still. We just had four very little kids. And I was asked to substitute for the weekly evening seminary class once And I really, you know, I didn't know the kids, so this is kind of unfair. They didn't know me. I didn't know them. I mean, I still had an interesting experience with them. But I don't mean to to be too down on this group of kids, except that it really did startle me. And I did think that there was something lacking in their understanding. I will say that. I'm not sure I convinced them, but we had been talking about, I don't even remember what the subject began with, but it ended up talking about Wilfred Woodruff and the St. George Temple having had that vision of the signers of the Declaration of Independence plus the presidents of the country, the presidents of the United States that were deceased at that time. And they came to Wilfred Woodruff and they appeared and they said, why have you not done our work? And so he gathered up some temple workers. It was kind of late at night there in St. George, but there were still a few people cleaning up and getting ready for the next day. And he said, let's start immediately. And they went to the baptismal font and they did baptisms for those amazing spirits who obviously with the permission of God, had come from the spirit world to appear in the temple to the prophets so that they could get their work done and they could progress from spirit prison, kind of a holding area where obviously they had been taught and had accepted the truth. So now they needed baptismal covenants in place so that they could progress into the paradise area and help with the teaching of the gospel and other parts of the ministry there. At any rate, when I mentioned that wonderful story, I gave the detail that in Wilfred Woodruff's journal, he noted that they did not do the work for Martin Van Buren or President, what was his first name? But anyway, Buchanan, James Buchanan, I guess, who was the one who sent the troops to Utah in the so-called Utah War. It was a pretty brief episode, but it did require that the saints pull the blocks the beginning blocks of the foundation of the Salt Lake Temple off and then cover it with dirt because these troops were coming and they didn't want to leave that vulnerability exposed. And Martin Van Buren, of course, is the one who infamously, which 
responded to the prophet Joseph Smith, who had come to ask for help for the saints, who were citizens of the United States, and he wanted the government to fulfill its responsibility to those citizens, to give redress for the things that had been taken or stolen from the saints, and the damage that had been done to body and and property. And Martin Van Buren's answer, as you may remember, was, your cause is just, but if I help you, I'll lose the Missouri boat. So he was too concerned about his own future elections to help the saints in a very justified petition to the leaders of the country for help. And Wilfred Woodruff, who had, of course, known about that situation with Joseph Smith and Martin Van Buren, wrote in his journal at the time after they started doing the work for the founding fathers as well as for the deceased presidents of the United States, wrote in his journal when he he noted that they had exempted Martin Van Buren and Buchanan. And then he said, when their cause is just, the work will be done. So kind of a, ooh, ouch, poetic moment there as he indicated that their cause was not just as they had done some pretty serious injuries against the saints when they were in positions of authority where they could have blessed the saints by just upholding the laws of the land. Anyway, as I told that story to these young people in Chicago, I was surprised. I'm no longer surprised by this, but that was maybe one of the first times that I saw a real pushback against that moment of justice. They they were upset. They were like, well, that's not nice. Why didn't Why wouldn't they just do their work for them anyway? And I said, well, but you see, there are consequences. <laughs> when you have that kind of stewardship, especially, and somebody comes to you with a legal you know, need and you have the power to fulfill it and you just choose not to for your personal gain, like there's going to be a consequence. That's not okay with God. You don't have to be a member of the church to have the light of Christ and to know that that is slimy behavior. And yet, these kids were like, but but they should do their work anyway. And I thought, wow, what is that? What does that mean? You know, and it seems to me that what sadly what happens is that we want mercy of that nature, even unjust mercy to be shown to others, maybe because we're afraid that we're not going to come up to the compliance level that will be required for us to receive the blessing. Is that fair? I don't know. I'm, I don't know the, the specifics of those children's lives. But my point is that like, are we just so afraid of justice because we're afraid that if justice is applied to us that we'll be out also? Well, then we can repent and we don't have to worry about that because that's the plan is that we come and yes, all fall short of the glory of God without Jesus Christ. We're all going to hell. We realize that if we're humble enough to pay attention. But nevertheless, there is a way prepared for us to be free of the consequences of sin through Jesus Christ. If we have faith, repent, you know, keep our baptismal covenants and, and continue faithful and receive the Holy Ghost, we never have to pay the price of sin because Christ will have carried that for us. Now, we have to do the work of repentance, which means that there is remorse involved and so on. I'm not saying it's the get-out-of-jail-free card because we have to do the work of repentance, but that work is light compared to the burden that Christ carried for us. And he asks relatively very little of us in order for us to receive this grand atoning power in our lives. But mercy cannot rob justice, and it is only on conditions of repentance that we can have that 
that great gift given to us that we can receive. So I just wanted to read this again. It reminded me of Alma 12. That is doing a nice review of the plan here, but I'm just going to read. I mean, it talks about Adam in the Garden of Eden with Eve, and, you know, if it had been possible for Adam, this is verse 23, Alma 12, verse 23. If it had been possible for Adam to have partaken of the fruit of the tree of life at that time, there would have been no death, and the word would have been void, meaning that if Adam and Eve had taken of the forbidden fruit and then been left in the garden to take the fruit of the tree of life, that would have prolonged their immortality and they would not have tasted of death, right? And the word would have been void, making God a liar, for he said, if thou eat, thou shalt surely die. So they needed to leave the garden and no longer partake of the fruit of the tree of life, which would have sustained their lives without death. And then he explains why this is a blessing in verse 24. And we see that death comes upon mankind. Yea, the death which has been spoken of by Amulek. So this is Alman Amulek speaking, which is the temporal death. Nevertheless, there was a space granted unto man in which he might repent. In other words, God did cast Adam and Eve out of the garden and all of us too, by extension, so that we could be in this mortal life and have this opportunity to repent. And that's exactly what he says. Therefore, this life became a probationary state, a time to prepare to meet God, a time to prepare for that endless state, which has been spoken of by us, which is the resurrection of the dead. So there is a space granted to us on this earth, this probationary state between well, our birth or Adam and Eve having been cast out of the garden, so to speak, but our birth and our death. And we have, during those years of mortal life, a space granted unto us to repent and get credit for it. Because we have no immediate consequences for sin, or rarely do we have immediate consequences for sin on this planet. There's typically a suspension of those consequences. So, you know, Martin Van Harris could betray his responsibility towards citizens, the saints, and he could get away with it for a period of time. He wasn't cast into prison. He didn't get cast into hell immediately. He continued his life. He never did win another election, but that's something else. But he he didn't have immediate justice brought to bear on him. The same with Buchanan, the same with the mobs in Missouri, the same with us. If we don't repent, there is not a lightning bolt that comes from heaven and zaps us until we repent. God gives us space. And why? So that I can choose to repent even if I'm getting away with sin. And look how magnificent a gift that is. That God allows us to grow the wheat and the tares to grow together. And you know, blessings and trouble come on everybody, regardless of whether or not they are living a repentant, faithful life. You know, to an extent, there are great blessings for having the gospel of Jesus Christ in our life. We'll talk about that when we talk about Malachi more. But but there are tremendous blessings that come, but there are also the troubles of life. It's still a probationary state. So you can't say that, like, well, all I have to do is what's right, and I end up on the desert cruise with no problems. No. I mean, Joseph Smith's life was full of trouble, as was the life of Job and Nephi and all the prophets, all of us, all the faithful saints have, have tribulation, meaning that justice is delayed. 
so that we can have a legitimate test. That space granted is precious. And then justice comes. And it seems to me that because that justice is delayed, some people kind of feel like justice is never coming. Because they do see people getting away with murder, you know? I say this every once in a while, right? But OJ probably did it. So we have a world where you can get away with all kinds of stuff. And maybe people have become so used to that that they just sort of feel like that's eternity too. But no, it is a probationary state that is granted unto us specifically for this time on this earth so that we can get credit if we choose to repent before the lightning comes, before the final judgment comes. So let us not waste that opportunity and let us not be fooled into thinking that there will be no day of accountability since it's not now. I think that permissive parenting has fed into this. I think that kids get away with a lot these days. <laughs> not, not all of them. I'm not condemning all parents. Please understand. And parenting is a tough job. So I don't expect that any of us would be perfect at it in this planet. I'm going to say, though, that when we don't impose appropriate consequences on our children for misbehavior or ignoring the rules or not doing their chores, etc., that in a way we are feeding this delusion in their heads that there's no real consequence. You know, yes, you should make your bed or help with the dishes or be honest. But if you aren't going to be doing those things, oh, well, you know, your parents feel helpless and they don't do anything. And so, okay, I guess you get away with it anyway and you still have all the benefits. You can still pass, go and collect $200. That's not useful for our children. It's not useful for them to think that there are no real consequences in life because they're going to, by extension, often say, well, then there, you know, probably doesn't matter too much. God's going to be really permissive and nice about things too. And yet, look what's happening here at the end of the book of the Old Testament. There is a day of accountability. There is a point at which it's everlastingly too late to repent, where the, the day of grace is passed with them, as the prophet Mormon said, or was it Moroni? I always forget. But anyway, one of those great men who says that about his people, that the day of grace is past. It's past. There's, there comes a night of darkness where no labor can be performed, where people are really ripened in iniquity. So just because people get away with a lot for a long time on this planet doesn't mean that's going to happen forever. And we need to make sure we remember that as we see this. This is not the story of a harsh God. This, this amazing God of ours warned and warned and warned this people to repent and turn away from their terrible behavior, their evil, wicked, idolatrous, lustful, licentious, gluttonous lives, and said, come back to me and I'll forgive you. But they would not. And finally, the day of grace was passed and the consequences came. And that is what will happen before the Lord's coming or as the Lord comes. We are now in a time of, you wouldn't listen to prophets? Here are the earthquakes. Here are the tempests. Here are the troubles that will come upon the earth because I am giving you even now another chance to repent. When all of a sudden your comforts are, are challenged and things are not as easy as they used to be, will you now return unto God and repent and worship him in the way that he has decreed? Or will you continue in your stubbornness like Zedekiah, who right at the end knows Jeremiah is a prophet and he still won't take his advice? Not at all easy to be entreated. May we be easy to be entreated. We had wonderful words from our prophets, all of them, prophets, seers, and revelators that we heard from in conference. We hear from them readily. They do all kinds of 
of things that are on the website. They do firesides. They do all kinds of special meetings. And they send messages right and left. We have such an abundance of prophetic voice and warning in our lives. Are we listening? I'm going to quote a couple more things from President Nelson. And I'm not in any particular order. Forgive me. This whole speech would have been wonderful. This is his Sunday morning speech that I quoted from a little bit last week. The truth is that it is much more exhausting to seek happiness where you can never find it. I have to stop for a minute and give an example. I was talking to a young woman who's married and has a child, and she and her husband go and do sales in the summer. And it's a good job for them, and they have a sales team. She says they're all Latter-day Saint couples. All of them are Latter-day Saint couples. And they, they go and do summer sales, and they're good at it. And so they have a lot of success. But she said that some of these couples... And I'm sure I'm getting some of the details wrong, so forgive me, but this is the general story, that some of them were married during the pandemic. So the temples were closed, so they didn't get married in the temple. They got married civilly as instructed so that they could then go forward with their lives. And when the temples were open, they could go back and be sealed. But she said some of them have delayed going back to the temple because they're kind of postponing making those more serious covenants. And that way the wives are not endowed and the wives don't wear garments. And so they dress like kids, you know, not like like adult women who should respect their temple, their body temples that God has told us, you know, we're, anyway, and it shouldn't even be about the garment line, right? Modesty should not be dictated by the garment line. It's dictated by the covenant that God has given us to respect ourselves, respect our bodies, respect others, and to be appropriately attired in a modest way. And instead of that, you know, they're just kind of, prolonging their adolescence, it seems like. And apparently most of these young couples who are all members of the church, as I said, and the husbands are basically all return missionaries, probably some of the wives too, but they they don't go to church. They're just taking a break. But they're planning to come back later. They're planning to come back and go through the temple and whatever. But right now they're they're acting like the fun is to be had outside the covenant. And I think that's what President President Nelson is warning against. The truth is, it is much more exhausting to seek happiness where you can never find it because happiness is not in disobedience. Happiness is not outside the kingdom of God. Those are false imitations. Is there pleasure? Yes. Is it pleasing to the natural man and the appetites? Yes. And it is so fleeting. That pleasure comes and then it goes, and it requires constant stimulation to seemingly continue, and it's less and less satisfying with more and more stimulus. That's just the way it goes with the appetites. And what God is offering us is so much greater. It is more exhausting, I keep repeating this, to seek happiness where you can never find it. However, when you yoke yourself to Jesus Christ and do the spiritual work required to overcome the world— He and he alone does have the power to lift you above the pull of this world. That's powerful promise right there. Skipping later in the speech, the reward for keeping covenants with God is heavenly power, power that strengthens us to withstand our trials, temptations, and heartaches better. We've talked about that, that every covenant is a covenant of power. The power eases our way. Those who live the higher laws of Jesus Christ have access to his higher power. Thus, covenant keepers are entitled to a special kind of rest that comes to them through their covenantal relationship with God. 
My dear brothers and sisters, I'm skipping around a little bit from President Nelson's wonderful speech. My dear brothers and sisters, so many wonderful things are ahead. I think he actually said this early on in the speech. In coming days, we will see the greatest manifestations of the Savior's power that the world has ever seen. Now, we're just coming off the Old Testament here. And we're talking about a God of miracles who can send plagues to Egypt. He can send fire from the sky to consume the sacrifice of Elijah. He parts the Red Sea. There's fire on the mountain, a cloud by day, a pillar by night, manna in the wilderness. These are miracles of our God. And yet our prophet is promising that in the coming days, we will see the greatest manifestations of the Savior's power that the world has ever seen, including all of these amazing moments in the Old Testament between now and the time he returns. With power and great glory, he will bestow countless privileges, blessings, and miracles upon the faithful. The faithful, if we comply with the gospel of Jesus Christ with a full heart, without our noses pressed against the candy store of the world, lusting after the, the pleasures and the, and the rewards that the world offers, which are nothing compared to what the Lord offers, which are pale comparisons that Satan is trying to float in our eyes and think that there is happiness? No, true happiness, joy, fulfillment, and the power that comes with all of those things is in obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is in being easy to be entreated, not stubborn, not stiff-necked, and not seduced by the world. Brothers and sisters, why are these miracles going to come? Because there will be hardship. Miracles don't just come for nothing. I mean, we have the small miracles all the time, and I hope that those are in our lives and we see them in the love of God every day. Nevertheless, the kind of power that President Nelson is promising will be displayed in the miracles of God, such as the world has never seen, will come because of the hardships. There will be a need for those miracles, and they will, as he says, give countless privileges, blessings, and miracles to the faithful. It's up to us if we're going to be recipients of these wonderful promises. But we can if we choose. We choose glory, brothers and sisters, when we choose to obey. We are choosing higher powers, higher glory, as we submit to God's will. Thy will, not mine, be done. Let us do it. Let's choose glory. Let's build Zion. I quoted last week that he said there has to be this amongst the gathering of Israel. That includes the, the development of a righteous people, a Zion people, to greet the Savior. There has to be that people. We can be amongst those people if we choose to obey. These messages are for us. They're for our day. I love them. I hope you've loved to study the Old Testament. Thank you so much to all of those of you who are subscribing on Patreon and supporting this podcast. P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Did I say that right? P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash choosing glory if you'd like to subscribe and support. Thanks as ever to my husband, Chris Anderson, and to Doug Larson of Point Digital. Take care. <laughs>